Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, he's calling for Western countries to ban Russian travelers, to ban Russians from entering their countries altogether. And he said that the whole population of Russia is responsible for the war. He said, made these comments to the Washington Post. He told them, quote, whichever kind of Russian, make them go to Russia. They'll understand then. They'll say, this war has nothing to do with us. The whole population can't be held responsible. Can it? It can. The population picked this government and they're not fighting it not arguing with it, not shouting at it, end quote. So that's really something there. He's blaming every Russian for um, the war in Ukraine. I mean, you could imagine if that standard was applied to the U.S., all the wars that Americans would be blamed for that many of them aren't even aware of. I mean, you think about all the post-9-11 wars. Um, But Zelensky is claiming that the West banning Russian travelers was the only way to prevent Russia from annexing Ukrainian territory. Russian installed officials in the Russian-controlled Ukrainian territories of Kherson and Zaporizhia have said that they are planning to hold referendums to join the Russian Federation. We've seen Secretary of State Antony Blinken warn that the U.S. would respond, uh, but it's not clear how the U.S. would respond because it has already imposed so many sanctions on Moscow. Zelensky said that the current sanctions regime was weak compared with banning all Russians from traveling and a total embargo on Russian energy. Now that's something that the West wouldn't be able to afford to do if you try to ban all Russian energy from being sold. That's just going to drive global prices skyrocketing. I mean, oil prices would be higher than anything we've seen. Um, Now, we've seen uh, Russian airlines have already been banned from flying over most of Europe and North America, but there hasn't been a blanket ban on Russian travel altogether. It's tough for Russians to travel right now because of the sanctions. Um, And we know that the U.S., you know, they lump Russians together with the Russian government as they do in other countries because sanctions generally hurt the ordinary citizens of the country that's targeted. And we see this with Russia. Right now, Russia is making uh, more money off oil than it did before the war. The ruble is doing great. Putin is doing just fine in his inner circle. But there's definitely some economic uh, pain being felt in Russia, mostly because of all the Western companies that have left. And that's just being felt by ordinary Russians. Uh, But that's what we see History has shown us that that's what sanctions do. And so by implementing these sanctions, the U.S. has to know that they're just going to hurt ordinary Russians. Um, Russia responded to Zelensky's comments on Tuesday, condemning them as irrational. So it seems like it's a new demand from Zelensky. I've seen him say a lot of things, but I haven't seen him call to ban all Russian travel yet. So this one, this next story... The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, has warned Africa not to purchase anything from Russia besides grain and fertilizer, or else they could face sanctions. She made these comments last Thursday in Uganda. I missed them last week. We saw it today. 
Um, but she basically threatened African countries with sanctions if they buy anything from Russia that's not fertilizer and wheat. And this is really just an example of how the U.S. kind of operates <laughs> because Thomas Greenfield made this visit to Africa before Antony Blinken went there. And the whole idea here is that the U.S. is kind of vying for inf influence when as China and Russia, mainly China, it seems like, are you know expanding ties with African countries. And we've seen most African countries have not condemned Russia's invasion. They've been calling for sanctions to be lifted. You know, they're not falling in line with what the U.S. wants. And here we see a U.S. official go over there and threaten them. And, you know, you, you see the way China operates. It's very different. You know, they offer infrastructure investment and things like that. But it doesn't come with all these strings attached that the, U the U.S. likes to have control over the government's um, of these other countries, um, that's the kind of influence that they want. Um, but we've seen uh, African countries, too, blaming Western sanctions for exacerbating food prices and shortages, as well as the war in Ukraine. But they're right to blame Western sanctions, because although these sanctions have exemptions for um, agricultural goods, fertilizer, and grain, they're still going to cause shortages, that, which they're still causing shortages because shipping companies and other international businesses, you know, they just don't want to do business with Russia altogether, just out of caution, because they don't want to deal with the hassle of it. Let's say you're a shipping company and you're, you decided to ship something out of Russia. If you're going to an EU port, that ship's going to need to be inspected to make sure that there's no sanctioned goods on it, slows everything down. They just say, we don't want to deal with it. And this is another thing, speaking of the sanctions hurting ordinary Russians, hurting ordinary people, we see this happen time and time again with sanctions. I use Iran as an example. There's technically exemptions for medical goods, but there's still medicine shortages and shortages of other medical goods in Iran because same thing, international banks, businesses, they say, no, we're not going to do any transactions with Iran just because it's it's a headache. We don't want to deal with it. And then the Biden administration acts surprised when this happens, even though it was very obvious that it would happen. Um, but they just want to put all the blame for the global food prices, the glo global um, economic issues. They just want to blame it all on Putin and the war in Ukraine when their sanctions have uh, just made everything worse. And it's funny because we actually saw President Biden admit this a few months ago. He said that sanctions were going to cause food shortages. And then a few months later, he also addressed it again. He said, what did you want me to do? Nothing? Should I have done nothing when Russia invaded? Uh, which was interesting to see. Um, but yeah, it's just an example of how the U.S. operates, goes around and tries to boss other countries around. This next one here, so Russia, Russian officials said on Tuesday that there are still issues hampering the transit of sanctioned goods to Kaliningrad. So we saw Lithuania announce in June that they were cutting off the transit of EU-sanctioned goods through their territory to Kaliningrad, which is a Russian enclave. It's Russian territory on the Baltic Sea. It's sandwiched in between Poland and Lithuania, two NATO countries, and goods 
travel to Kaliningrad through Belarus and through Lithuania. And when Lithuania announced that it was enforcing EU sanctions, really angered Moscow because this is sanctioning goods traveling from Russia to Russia. So it's different than other sanctions enforcement. So the EU eventually said, you got to let these goods go through. Lithuania reluctantly agreed. When they first implemented this embargo, they, they said, oh, Russia's not going to respond. There's not going to be a military response because we're a member of NATO. So that shows you what giving these smaller countries a war guarantee could lead them to do. Um but there's still issues with the transit of goods to Kaliningrad, according to Russian officials, according to the Kaliningrad governor. They said that the EU has imposed limits on sanctioned goods, quotas, so they can only send a certain number of sanctioned goods. And the governor of Kaliningrad said that they've already reached the ceiling set by the Europeans on the transit of some goods, including iron, steel, oil, and petroleum products, fertilizers. Uh, and the Russian foreign ministry, they said that the situation has improved and it and it is better than it was, but the, the transit of goods to Kaliningrad is still far from normal. And they said that they're ready to retaliate if things deteriorate further. So we'll see if they're going to try to improve the situation. Um, but it's just a follow-up on this story because that was, to Russia, a pretty big provocation Lithuania shutting down that transit. And we saw it was interesting when the EU said, no, you got to let it through. They were not happy about it. And they made it clear that they weren't happy about it in the statements that they released. They really didn't want to look like they were backing down. Uh, the next one here, President Biden on Tuesday, he signed documents endorsing Sweden and Finland joining NATO. It was the final step needed for the formal U.S. approval of the two Nordic nations joining the military alliance. So since Sweden and Finland joining NATO, that makes them treaty partners of the U.S., their membership needed approval of the U.S. Senate, where it was overwhelmingly approved in a vote of 95 to 1. And the one no vote was Senator Josh Hawley, Republican, and he argued in the national interest that he was voting no because he thinks the U.S. should be expanding military assets in the Asia-Pacific against China. So unfortunately, there's not really any opposition to expanding against either China or Russia. And Rand Paul, he voted present, so he didn't vote no. Um, but Biden signed the documents called the Instrument of Ratification, and he made comments at the White House. He said Sweden and Finland were making a sacred commitment that an attack against one is an attack against all, and that's what is outlined by Article 5 of the NATO Treaty that outlines the Mutual Defense Clause. Now, Finland shares in over... 800-mile border with Russia and its ascension into NATO will more than double the alliance's territory that borders Russia. Vladimir Putin has said that he doesn't view Sweden and Finland joining the alliance as a threat. Russian officials have said it's different than Ukraine trying to join because they don't have territorial disputes with Sweden and Finland. But Putin has said that they will respond to the expansion of NATO military inf infrastructure in the region. So it's just going to raise tensions more in the region, more military deployments, probably more military exercises and stuff like that. 
but their membership, it still needs to be approved by all 30 NATO countries. From what I understand, more than 20 have already approved it. And the only country that has signaled it could block them from joining is Turkey. They want Sweden and Finland to fulfill the terms of this memorandum that they signed back in June. Turkey initially objected to them joining over their alleged support for the Kurdish militant group PKK. And now Turkey wants to extradite suspected PKK members from Sweden and Finland. They put in their request. It's not clear how they're going to respond yet. And it's also not clear if they say no, if that means Turkey's not going to approve them joining NATO. So we'll see how that develops. Um, we left the CBS documentary up story about CBS removing the documentary that it had about the flow of military aid that quoted a head of an NGO who said only like 30% of the military aid reaches its final destination. He said that in April, the Ukrainian government got mad and they pulled the documentary. But we actually found the original one, which we posted here. Jason Ditz put it in his up on his YouTube channel. So hopefully that stays up there and doesn't get pulled down. But it's definitely interesting to watch. I watched it earlier. And somebody uh, on Twitter on Twitter pointed out to me that an important aspect of this documentary is that they interviewed the, the head of the Mozart group, which is a nonprofit that was started to help get, get military aid to Ukraine. He's an American. He's a former U.S. Marine. And he says, I don't care if there's that. Basically, who cares if there's waste? Who cares if it risks if these weapons end up in the wrong hands? It doesn't matter. None of that matters. And I think that that's a pretty prevailing view in Washington that these issues of where are these weapons going to end up, them getting on the black market, uh, the future, what could happen in the future, um, is that they just don't really care. Even though they're sending tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine without knowing where it's going. Okay, the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute, the U.S., to conduct military operations in Chinese-claimed waters. So Colin Cal, he's the Undersecretary for Defense Policy. He said the Navy is expected to send warships on what they call freedom of navigation operations in waters claimed by China. So they're called phone ops for short. We saw these really start under Obama. He started challenging China's claims to the South China Sea by sending warships near Chinese-claimed islands. These were ramped up by the Trump administration, and we've seen them continue under Biden. Overall, U.S. military activity in the region, in the South China Sea, and in other areas around there has increased under Biden, and we've seen these phone ops continue. Uh, so he's basically just saying, you know, amid these unprecedented Chinese military drills around Taiwan that we've been talking about a lot, the U.S. is still going to send warships into the region, which just risks stoking tensions even more. We've seen that the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet is expected to send ships through the Taiwan Strait soon. And that's what Cal says also, the Taiwan Strait transits will continue. It's usually just one destroyer that goes through the strait. I have a feeling they might try to try to flex their muscles a little bit and send some more ships. And I don't know how China is going to respond to that. We're seeing that they're um, 
taking they've taken things to another level here as a result of Nancy Pelosi visiting the island. And I don't think that they're just going to let a bunch, a big armada of U.S. warships sail through the Taiwan Strait, at least right now. So we'll see uh, where that goes. <laughs> the next one here, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, she defended her trip to Taiwan on Tuesday, saying that it was worth it despite the unprecedented drills the Chinese military has held around the island in response. Leading up to her trip, China made clear that it would respond militarily, and the Biden administration warned it could spark a major crisis across the Taiwan Strait. That didn't matter to Pelosi. She's in her first, this is her first interview that she did after returning from Asia. She said, I think it's worth it. She pointed out that we she received overwhelming bipartisan support for the trip, which is true. We saw a lot of Republicans, 26 Senate Republicans released a statement in support of her visiting Taiwan. And now she also, she questioned why her trip received so much attention. And she pointed out that a bipartisan Senate delegation visited Taiwan back in April, and it included Senator Bob Menendez. He is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, Pelosi claimed that China ignored this delegation, but that's not true. As I covered for antiwar.com, Beijing did respond with rhetoric. They warned the U.S. was going down a dangerous path by sending this delegation. And they also launched military drills in response across from Taiwan. So this is a pretty typical response that we saw to congressional delegations going to Taiwan in recent years. They've really picked up. And we also saw Senator Rick Scott visit in July. They flew aircraft across the median line when Scott visited that separates the Taiwan Strait. That wasn't normal. Now it's normal because of Pelosi. Every day since she visited Taiwan, China has sent warplanes across the median line. They never really did that before, and they're making it clear that it's a new normal. It's going to become routine. And this is uh, just completely unnecessary provocation, but it's just important to note because Pelosi's saying that China didn't care about these other delegations. That's not true. Her trip there was kind of the culmination of the U.S. increasing its support for Taiwan over the past few years. That really started under the Trump administration. And China has been warning the whole time, if you keep doing this, we're going to respond. This isn't, don't do this, stop. But of course they didn't listen, and she just doesn't even know what's happening apparently she didn't realize that they were responding to previous congressional delegations just completely ignorant of the situation um so yeah that's just uh it just goes to show how they do these provocations and then they try to act like it's not a big deal uh so the next one here president biden he signed the 280 billion dollar chips and science act into law on monday so this massive piece of legislation, it includes nearly $53 billion to subsidize domestic, the domestic production of semiconductors, $24 billion for tax incentives, and over $200 billion in research funding that will go to federal government agencies. At a signing ceremony, Biden said that the bill would help the U.S. compete with China in the chip industry. Um, opponents of the bill have likened it to corporate welfare, and we saw Congress and the Biden administration work closely with corporations 
when the legislation was making its way through Congress. And we've seen some U.S. chip makers announce that they're going to be building facilities with the funds from this bill. And U.S. weapons makers were also eager to see this legislation become law. Biden and Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, they met with the CEO of Lockheed Martin to discuss the bill before it passed through Congress. And when Pelosi was in Taiwan, she met with chip industry leaders, including the chairman of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, and that's the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer. Pelosi discussed the Chips and Science Act with the TSMC chair, and that signals that the U.S. is trying to entice Taiwanese companies to open more facilities in the U.S. with these new funds. Now, part of the strategy, the U.S. strategy against China's chip industry is sanctions, but they've appeared to backfire. I've mentioned this before that the U.S. sanctions targeting that industry in China really sparked this uh, uh, effort in China to get their domestic production of these goods going, and and they've done it. And now the, all 19 out of 20 of the fastest growing chip makers are all in China. Um, so this is a big part, a big aspect, definitely, of the U.S. relationship toward Taiwan. But because of all the chips that are made there, but the U.S. actions are making war more likely. You know, China has warned if you support Taiwan's independence forces, it will lead to war. So if you think, you know, if you care about the supply chain provoking a war, where the, the chips are made is not a good idea. Um, but it definitely is a big part of the whole Taiwan thing. And um, But ultimately, I think Pelosi's trip was about provoking China to justify more military activity and alliance building in the Asia Pacific. So that's it for today. We, ha- we link to some good viewpoints, uh, one from Colonel Douglas McGregor at the American Conservative. He's a good voice to be listening to right now. Also one from our friend, Caitlin Johnstone. Um, She actually mentions a bit of an appearance that I had on Rising. That's the Hill TV show to discuss Pelosi. Um, So you can check that out if you want. She links to the video too. Uh, But that is it for today. I'll have more stuff for you guys tomorrow. You can contact the show, news at antiwar.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, you could DM me there if you want to get in touch. You could support the show, antiwar.com slash donate. Oh, and something I was discussing uh, earlier with Kyle Anzalone was that I should really plug our uh, email list because we have a great newsletter. Here, I'll just show you here quick if you're watching on the video. Uh, we send out a daily newsletter of all of our articles that we run each day and we also put out a weekly newsletter kind of a roundup of all the top stories of the week so you could go to the page and subscribe to that antiwar.com slash newsletter the weekly one looks really nice um it's just a it's a good resource and it's always a good backup because you know these days there's the chance of getting kicked off of social media and stuff that we always have to kind of worry about what if you're on the mailing list you'll keep uh seeing us uh but that's it And I'll talk to you guys 